Welcome to Season 10 of the Art of Teaching Podcast. I'm Matthew Green, and I'm so grateful that you've joined me today. Before we get started with our discussion, I would like to acknowledge the Dharawal people, the traditional custodians of this land on which I'm recording, and pay respect to elders past, present and emerging. I acknowledge the stories, traditions and living cultures of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples on this land. It's my great pleasure to introduce you to my next guest, Ryder Tracy. Ryder has worked in education for many years, including holding senior leadership positions in schools and working at the Centre for Educational Statistics and Evaluation, or CC. He is now the Head of Educational Transformation at Creatable Futures. Creatable is founded on a number of key principles, including the belief that the best education must be readily accessible and constantly evolving. They are passionate about transferring lessons and ideas from industry to improve teaching and learning and have worked with some of the world's biggest brands including RM Williams, Meta and Atlassian. We talked about many things in this interview including the difference between data and evidence, cognitive load theory and what being a dad has taught him about active listening. I hope that you get as much out of this wide-ranging conversation as I did. Ryder, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much uh, for tuning in. Where are you phoning from? Uh, thanks for having me. I'm uh, phoning in from Sydney, Australia. So uh, nice and local for you today. Nice. You're uh, sporting a wonderful beard. Is that a recent addition or is it just a, I don't know, a fashion uh, statement? What's going on? Yeah, not a fashion statement. I, I like to have the beard because if something goes really poorly when you're giving a keynote, uh, you can whip the beard off and they don't recognize you and you get booked again. Fantastic. Uh, quite possibly the most important uh, question for our conversation, Ryder. What is your coffee order when I can finally nip over and buy a coffee? Ah, well, I'm going to be pretty boring here. I don't drink coffee. Right. Uh, caffeine free. So I've got my my glass of water and I'm ready to go. So have you always been caffeine free? Because uh, educators seem to uh, be uh, quite addicted to the old coffee. Yeah, I'm um, I'm trained to drink on the bell, but I'll stick to the water bottle rather than the coffee. Fantastic. Um, is there something that you have recently changed your mind about? It could be within education. It could be more broadly. Um, I'd probably, I'd love to be really profound with my first response, but I'm going to take a bit of a cop out for you here. Um, I'm going to go with Turkish delights, the chocolate. Love that. Favorite chocolates. Yeah. Well, it's growing to be mine, whereas it was once something that I would never touch. So I've changed my tune on Turkish delight. Do you know, I've always been uh, flying the Turkish delight flag. The thing that I think I've probably changed my mind on is Brussels sprouts, which I never thought I would like, but somehow my wife cooks them in a way that uh, makes them pretty delicious. But uh, well, I might have to edit that one out. I don't uh, know if I want to publicize that. if uh Ryder, if you could have a dinner party with anybody um past or or present um who would be there and why obviously your family aren't included in the headcount don't want to get you in any trouble <laughs> well i did just think after that gratuitous plug of your wife's cooking that the first <laughs> person at my dinner party must be my wife um uh clarify do they need to currently be alive or can they be deceased can we go back in time for this i think we'll, i think we can go back in time yeah I think I'd have to say Douglas Adams. Right. Yeah. I think the uh, for the reason, I think he's got some stories to tell, but also uh, with the satirical wit to probably provide some commentary and insight that would provoke pretty interesting dialogue. So just you and Douglas Adams, or is there anyone else you'd like to add to the list? I will, wife and family, as, as you <laughs> mentioned. Yeah. Uh, if I get a second guest invite, I'd probably invite uh, David Epstein, who wrote uh, Range. Uh, he has some pretty profound thoughts on uh, what we should do as educators, but not in a preachy way, from a learned way. Um, he writes for Sports Illustrated and has a, a couple of books. So uh, I'd love to hear the dialogue between he and Douglas for sure. Fantastic. Um, Ryder, what was your upbringing like and what were you, what were you like at school? Uh, yeah, well, uh, upbringing, uh, 
middle class, uh, yeah. affluent uh, kind of uh, beach suburb, Sydney based. So yeah, nice. uh, down at Cronulla. Um, so that's probably going to turn plenty of your listeners off. That's but, a, that, uh, is, that is my neck of the woods. I, I understand. <laughs> I'm surprised you left, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, left and back. So uh, grew up in Cronulla, uh, very sport rich uh, kind of upbringing uh, in terms of schooling. Uh, you know, probably a similar story to lots of people tell, you know, I guess quite keen and eager uh, mm. through early years and primary, probably lost my way for academic motivation and relevance, you know, engagement through high school uh, and then re-engage through university. And uh, I probably uh, would have liked to have taught me in early primary and I wouldn't have liked to have taught me in high school so a big uh hello to everyone out there <laughs> and did you have a uh did you have a teacher that really made a difference in your life in a, in a positive way I think I think probably not with the specificity I think any like I don't want to call someone out by name really yeah. in, in this particular piece what I would say is uh when teachers met me where I was at and there was relevance to what I was doing, I was engaged. And when they didn't, I wasn't. <laughs> so, yeah. Interesting. And without going into names, have you uh, had the opportunity to go and uh, meet these particular educators again? Are they are they pleasantly surprised in your career directory, uh, trajectory or uh, what's that <laughs> like? Uh, yeah, well, uh, I have... Uh, previous roles I've had held uh, have been as a as a director within the New South Wales Department of Education. So, uh, going back and talking to former teachers when you possibly weren't the strongest student um, leaves them in a great position to provide commentary on what you're saying. Um, yeah. We know that authenticity uh, is is the key to credibility. Um, you know, so at least those teachers. Uh, can speak when I speak about student engagement. Um, yeah. they know, I speak with authority for someone who has spent some time disengaged. <laughs> and uh, right, I'm just wondering why. Uh, why did you go back into the education system? I mean, you mentioned you had a quite a positive experience in the early years. Somewhat, um, uh, you lost focus and motivation somewhat in high school, and then kind of yeah. reengaged at university. But, but, but why go back? Why follow that particular career path? Yeah, I guess um, uh, I mentioned in my upbringing that it was very sport heavy. I spent um, some time living at the Australian Institute of Sport uh, as I was finishing high school. Uh, at that point in time, I had some delusional optimism of, uh, you know, my athletic prowess. And I thought that that was going to uh, lead to employment, you know, in that um, sphere. And that's not how it played out for me. So initially, I, I probably got into teaching for the wrong reasons. I got into teaching because it was familiar around the training schedule I was already doing as a student. And my rationale was, uh, if I want to keep training, you know, 40, 50 hours a week, then I need a job uh, that allows me to do that. Turns out, as all of your listeners will no doubt be aware, um, the uh, time engaged in being a teacher is a lot more than the time engaged being a student. So didn't quite play out the way that I thought um, and maybe not the right reason to go into teaching, but um, that's that's my honest answer of why yeah. I started in education. Yeah, interesting. And we're, we're probably around roughly around the same age. And I think um, it's, it. I mean, you're, you're, and I'd love you to unpack maybe some of your um, kind of leadership history within the Department of Education, some of your amazing work at CC and um, all of those kind of highlights. But you seem like you were, um, you must have been identified quite quickly um, as a leader or as a, as a game changer in education, because um, I know a lot of people your age that wouldn't have had those opportunities. So um, if you wouldn't mind maybe taking me back to uh, some of those highlights in your career and maybe also unpack why you think that that career progression happened so fast. Yeah, um, it's interesting to reflect on because I probably haven't spent too much time reflecting on it. I, I was uh, the beneficiary of some good mentorship, you know, mm -hmm. along the way. So 
I didn't have the beginning teacher experience of being kind of cut adrift. I had really explicit uh, modeling support and instruction, which is critical in those first three years, as, as we know. Um, I probably was the beneficiary of, um, I think when, when you're an athlete, um, you get a very clear sense of feedback, like when to provide it, when to receive it. Um, yeah. and you get a very clear concept of personal best, you know, not everyone needs to be performing at the optimum, but the optimum for themselves. So that that kind of Vygotsky zone of proximal development is something that is inherent in most athletes. I think I had the benefit of uh, holding a lot of leadership positions as you know youth sport on the way through and trying to get the best out of my team. Um, but the best thing for the team is the best thing for each individual to contribute and understand the team. And I I kind of I think I carried that into my classroom. Uh, was provided an environment in which to get feedback and experiment and learn. Um, and if I'm really honest, probably, um, you know, I was, I was a male teacher in primary schools and um, I don't like to think back like that, but there was probably some demographic contribution to that as well, which probably gave me not the roles in themselves. I think you still had to earn those, but certainly garnered the opportunity for attention to yeah. them perform and achieve, I think. Um, Interesting. You know, yeah, I think I think that probably did play a role yeah. early on. I would love to um, maybe unpack um, the concept of mentorship and leadership. Um, you mentioned that the that you were sort of significantly impacted by a mentor, at least in your early career, or mentors, at least in your early um, career and education and would you mind maybe sharing a little bit about that um, and also what you think are some of the key attributes of great mentors yeah I think I think the number one attribute in the school environment certainly for me probably of good leadership in general uh, is consistency yeah you know I think um, I've seen a lot of leaders who are good leaders be quite reactionary in moments of chaos and we see an increased kind of frequency of chaos yeah. in the schooling landscape at the moment um probably not more so than previously maybe but um leaders that uh if i have faith and confidence that the same conversation would happen to my face when i'm not there you know uh like in any given setting or if i come in with the same problem on any given day i'll get the same reaction yeah. um it gives me the confidence and clarity and consistent feedback in a reflective way like an indirect modeling um capacity for me to say oh that's how i should act you know like the standard you walk past is the standard you accept right you know so i think that uh when I say mentoring, it was probably more me not knowing what my expectations were and then having the benefit of people who did the right thing uh, from a teaching pedagogy perspective because they were just great teachers rather than um, actively trying to go out and use positional authority to tell me what I should do better. Yeah. I mean, that that's... Self-awareness strikes me as something which is incredibly important um, as a leader. And that's something which has come up time and time again in these um, podcast episodes. And how do you think, uh, firstly, do you agree? And also, secondly, um, how do we um, create those opportunities for reflection and to develop that self-awareness muscle as leaders? Uh, self-awareness for ourselves, I think, you know, industry has a lot to kind of share with us there. And I'm sure we'll get into that in a little yeah. bit later uh, because I've probably refined my perspective over time uh, through to exposure of really amazing leaders. I think in the school setting, um, self-awareness is as powerful as it enables action. Mm. You know, like it's one thing to be self-aware and feel vulnerable in a safe environment. It's another thing to be self-aware and then acknowledge that and try and address that. And 
what you find, uh, we often, you know, there's a great, great bit of jargon out there at the moment around collective efficacy, right? You know, different people will, and I'm not anti-collective efficacy, but um, I do wonder at times if people have a good grasp on self-efficacy, right? you know, um, like collective efficacy being, uh, you know, when everyone is contributing, you know, in, in the right way, self-efficacy kind of being built from that belief that I can learn, you know, and, and as leaders, I mean, it's pretty cliche. I can sit here and say, you know, it's about rethinking, it's about reframing, it's about good evaluative question, but I think it's about authentic authenticity again you know I, I know i've kind of tapped into that before um i spent some time at atlassian uh with with dominic price who's a workplace uh futurist that works at atlassian uh you know and he speaks about the importance of active listening you know and i uh i'm not specifically answering your question in terms of leadership i'm probably more talking about it as an attribute that's fundamental to all right you know, students parents teachers you know active listening you know is about uh actually being prepared to listen to what's being said you know he's got a great throwaway phrase which says um <laughs> like listen for respectful dissent you know and and so as a leader when you throw something out there at you know, 6.30 after everyone's taught a full school day and you've held them in for a three-hour kind of powwow to work through, you know, yeah. whatever problem is in front of you. Um, there's a social desirability bias to just say, yeah, boss, whatever. I just want to go home to my family and kids, you know, but... Uh, Interesting. you got to hear that. you got to hear that in the tone as the leader, you know, and go, am I getting consent here because it's the easiest path that I've left open or is there actual consent with what we're trying to do? Yeah, absolutely. And do you think um, if uh, we were to ask your wife, do you think she would uh, say that you are a good active listener? Um, I know I think I am, uh, but then when I ask the people that I live with, um, they tend to call me out on it. <laughs> she doesn't have right of reply here. So <laughs> um, I, I would say, um, I would say, Every good relationship requires active listening. And I would say we have a good relationship. I would say, I would predict she would probably say that I'm a much better active listener now than I was 20 years ago, you know? Um, how, how do you think, Ryder, that you begin to kind of flex that muscle? Because it is something that I naturally am not good at. I constantly, I think previously in my, so early in my leadership career, I I kind of always wanted to fill the space and I didn't want there to be awkwardness. I didn't want people to feel challenged. And so I would just jump in and save the day. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Is that something that, that you can relate to? And how do we begin as leaders to, to, to build that, to build that competency? Yeah. Well, I, I won't um, speak on behalf of the world, but I will speak on behalf of my own experiences. And what I would say is in my early leadership, I felt uh, I went from a classroom teacher where when a question is asked or someone is struggling with a concept, I've been trained to jump in and provide the scaffold and support. And I've been in a position where I've been the knowledge holder. When I stepped into leading other teachers, um, I probably carried more of those mannerisms into those meetings than I'd like to, like right. on reflection. If I could talk to me in my first leadership position, I would say, actually the people around you have really good ideas are really informed and really experienced in my head at the time I was trying to prove my worth right. and so I That's felt enough. you know jump in and and say what you think and you know I'm not going to ask anyone to do what I wouldn't do myself here's what I've done and actually what that tends to do is drive a little bit of a wedge um and so I think uh over time uh there are processes and structures that you can put in place that that absolutely help, you know, and I would say one of those is the discipline of evaluation, you know, like clear agendas, clear, like binary kind of questions, you know, that can keep you on focus. Um, you know, some people would tell you, well, an agenda can be uh, pretty painful as you work through the dot points, you know, methodically, you know, uh, 
Matthew wants to talk about, you know, his spelling program. So you don't listen to the preceding agenda item because you're getting ready for your agenda item and right. that sort of thing. But I think if you put in the right prompts and structures, you know, people before process, but process can help people. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, Roddy, you, um, your career trajectory was quite fast uh, from the classroom into leadership positions. And then my understanding was that you spent um, uh, uh, quite a bit of time at CC. Talk to us about what that was like. I know CC is a an organization that obviously we use so much within the Department of Education. And was that was that eye-opening? Was What was that like in terms of, yeah, that experience? Yeah. Um, so I held, the last role I held in CC was uh, Director of Strategic Priorities. Yeah. Um, so in that role, uh, I got a pretty good feel for the the department. Um, if you had have asked me in my first 10 years of teaching, um, where will your career trajectory take you? Um, CC would not have been on my list. Wow. I didn't really know it existed in those early years of teaching. You know, the department's a big, um, uh, complex beast and you don't know all the twists and turns, but, uh, at the time when I was in CC, there was a really beautiful synergy between educators and non-educator experts. And, and what I'm referencing there was uh, we were sort of kicking off with the scout data that's now embedded. You know, we were uh, had really genuine evaluators and academics, you know, that were able to draw into the literature. And, and then we had teachers that were able to translate that into uh, something usable. Because it's all well and good if it's a 180-page report, um, yeah. but not super practical. So, so what what do you think, um, Ryder? We, uh, us educators, get wrong about data? Because I I actually love I love data. I know that's a it's not yes I love data. And I was talking to um, Dr. Lynn Sherat a little while ago about mm -hmm. um, the importance of actually personalizing data and seeing beyond the metrics and the statistics and yeah what are some of the things that we we do wrong with data and how can we make it more meaningful and more engaging yeah well um it might be only you and i listening to the rest of this call but that's my passion piece where you've hit on now um i would say the first thing is um oh, it sounds a bit preachy to start with like where people go wrong but i think systemically with education i think we go wrong talking about data um we should be talking about evidence, right. really. And, and what we should be talking about, like data becomes evidence when it tests a hypothesis or proves right. if something true or disproves it. Right. So um, before you get your data, you need your question in place. And then the question should drive that data. What we tend to make the mistake of is, um, like if you look at something like Scout and every, you know, I know you go global and around Australia, there's lots of systems for data collection that's available to teachers. What's the purpose of that information? Well, it should really be at a granular level for a student about how do I move from here to there? Um, what we tend to do is we get all the data, like NAPLAN's a classic example. We've just, just been through a whole heap of NAPLAN exams schools will get given all of their data and then go looking for trends or patterns. But you need to be disciplined before that because what will happen is you'll you'll have confirmation bias, right? Like I'll look at, um, here's my trend data from 2018 to 2023. Oh, we went up, 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 and then we dropped for that year. Oh yeah, that was the year that, you know, um, so-and-so was teaching year four, or that was the year, like whatever our bias is, we'll find a rationale. We'll post-rationalize the data to fit our right. understanding of the world. But yeah. what we should be doing is taking um, the hypothesis of what we think it should look like right. and, and looking for the data to either confirm or deny whether that hypothesis is true. Yeah. So I think that's fundamentally where we um, miss a trick in education. So you're saying that we use it to confirm an assumption that we already had. Um, Often, yeah. You know, like yeah, this year's kind of justify. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, like this year's cohort is stronger than last year's cohort. Look at their uh, language conventions results. You know, or the boys are performing better than the girls because of the veggie garden we planted. Um, and then, oh, lo and behold, I can find some data to justify right. that that is so. Um, you know. 
So this is a um, writer. This is a this is fascinating, and this is a podcast episode or series of podcasts in itself. And I, I um, I'm just wondering though, like, how do we do a better job? Because as educators, we we get a lot of data, we get a lot of trends, we get a lot of there's a lot there. But how can we actually use it better? How can the person standing in front of the kids each and every day use it better? How can leaders use it? To help shape and change culture like what do we what do we need to do with that yeah i think the first thing is buy-in right like trust if yeah. you don't trust the data then you won't use the data to inform an action you yeah know? so um uh if if i was to ask you you know do aliens exist you know you could answer yes or no but then i would say well what proof would you require to believe that it's so yeah, yeah. interesting um it it often happens that in my experience, you know, everyone will have their own take on this, but in my experience, I would say I've seen a lot of um, political agendas based on outcomes-based funding, right? So you say at a broad brush statement for a system, uh, you know, there's a narrative around in Australia at the moment that we're putting more money into schools than we've ever put before students aren't performing as well on standardized assessment as they were previously. Therefore, the money we've spent isn't money well spent and teachers are doing a poor job, right? And, and I would say that's a really deficient logic model and it comes from a lack of understanding of what's important in a school setting, right? Um, so where we, where we can improve, I think, is to spend more time in the problem definition of what we're trying to solve. Like if the purpose of education is fundamentally to equip students with the skills they need to be successful post-schooling, then we need to look really closely at the measures we're using and how we're using them. Yeah. Like it is a zero benefit um, to be comparing schools, right? Like, you know, it's not about accountability, comparison and judgment. What it's about is having um, an informed perspective that's not subjective you know is is absolutely quantifiable um understanding where we're at understanding where we want to be and then having a rational pathway yeah. based on that information for where to move so let's just um let's say for example there is a a trend down let's say in reading data what yeah. what do we even what do we begin to do with that um yeah so um the first thing i would say is reading is absolutely important at your school to start with, right? And so um, the teachers at the school would have a really informed perspective. Like it's likely that they could predict or anticipate or have existing internal school data that already predicts that downward trend. Yeah. If, if their data doesn't predict that downward trend and then you see it in a one-off standardised assessment, then there's a question of, well, why is that so? Were there circumstances around that one day that contributed to that? Like understanding how the data is acquired. So I guess what I'm saying is there's a triangulation piece and it comes around trust. Ultimately, if there's a downward trend in reading, we don't want a downward trend in reading. We want an upward trend in reading. But what we fundamentally want is each individual student to be making progress with their reading. And so um, like... Uh, Dr. Sharrett would have talked to you about, you know, data visualization and the person behind the data and the faces behind the data. I think that's true, um, but I don't think it's only reading data that contributes to reading growth. And I right. think this is where we miss a trick, right? Like um, one of the best papers we put out at CC when I was there was cognitive load theory, right? I, I, I'm so grateful for that um yeah that's my go anyway sorry to interrupt that's my go <laughs> well i'm i'm pleased because it's a beautiful paper but you will never you will never draw the conclusion of how to improve our reading data at this school is to reduce cognitive load in reading instruction right. right you won't get that from looking at the data what you'll get is we've got a deficiency in phonics you know phonological awareness here is plummeting we need to do more phonological awareness yeah and there's a reactionary pressure around outcomes-based funding that says uh, our teachers clearly aren't teaching reading well. We need to get a reading expert in and do reading professional learning to remedy our reading problem. But teaching is far more complex than that. What you actually might need, you know, is 
you might need to spend some time around perseverance. You know, you might need to spend some time around um, reducing cognitive load in instruction. You know, you might need to spend some time around um, like the environment and the relationship, you know, that sits between teacher and student. I mean, I don't know. Interesting. But what, what I do know is um, if you think about, if you think about outcomes in a narrow constraint that has been evaluated through a narrow constraint, you will right. get a narrow recommendation. And, and I think we've proven that that's probably yeah. not the pathway to success. Can, can I ask then, Ryder, um, how do we like measure schools and should we be doing that? How do we know if a school is a quote unquote good school or a poor performing school? What are some of the things in your opinion that we should be looking at? Because it seems like if we're looking at a very narrow focus and extrapolating um, where to next, it seems like we've kind of missed the point. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I feel strongly about that. Um, I, I would say uh, if you were to ask, if you were to read most teachers teaching philosophy, right, you know, and because of the busyness of most teachers, they probably wrote it in their very first program and it's, you know, you've changed the year on it each year and it's still sitting there or there's a digital file of it somewhere. But Or Google um, it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. What does um, you know, yeah. the chatbot write for me? Um, what the chatbot would write for you would be something along the lines of, um, uh, this is what I fundamentally believe anyway. Others can push back on it, but but as a teacher, I see my responsibility as developing the whole child, you know. And so I would say, and I think a lot of teachers would say in their philosophy, it's about well-being you know it's about and we see that present in school plans and things but social and emotional adjustment you know it's about feeling safe it's about yeah. like having all of those attributes where we fall down is um people that aren't educators there's a there's a well look at the title of your podcast right the art of teaching what we're talking about is the science of teaching and in terms of the data and the instruction and the feedback what yeah. we don't probably give enough credit is the profession's capacity yeah. for the art of teaching. Absolutely. Um, you know, and so are those things measurable? Yes. Um, uh, is measuring them valuable? Debatable, you know, yeah. there's different measures. I know certainly we used to get plenty of pushback on our well-being measure, you know, like as a student-led survey of engagement. Interesting. You know? um, but uh, I think, I think that... I think that every teacher controls the climate in their classroom. And I think that every principal controls the climate in their school. And I think that every, you know, director or system leader controls the climate in their yeah. area of responsibility. Yeah. And I think that back to the kind of mentoring and the modeling, you know, if they care and value the things that are fundamental, you know, to that child individually, you know, not the aggregated data, um, you know, then then you're mm. most likely to seek growth in those other indicators as well. Yeah. Um, right. Once again, there's so much in that. And that is a that is a podcast series in itself. And before we talk about the amazing work that you're doing now and that transition um from um educational research to the amazing work that you're doing at Creatable. I just wanted, and without talking specifically about uh, edu uh, particular education systems, because I'm very proud to be working where I am. Um, yeah. I, I just wondered if you could tell me a little bit more about um, accountability uh, with data and also if you think there is a sort of a perceived lack of trust uh, in the profession. And and yeah, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, definitely. Question, sorry. Yeah, no, it's a good, it's a good one. It's a triple barreler. So when I'm off track, you need to steer me back. But um, I just want to say one thing at the start of that. Um, I love my time at the department and I, my kids are in um, public schools in New South Wales and I'm really proud of the work that happens there. And I'm a big advocate of that system. Um, when I'm talking about pressures that are placed, I think that often the system is unfairly blamed for um, decisions that are for, imposed upon it. And I think that um, my time at CC shone light on how many advocates there are within our system that advocate and protect us within schools from a lot of the pressures outside. Yeah. Um, that that being said, you know, I guess 
you know, I, what specifically would you like me to tap into on the, on the rest of it? Yeah, look, I, I think um, I'm really interested in this, uh, like data kind of being used for not its intended purpose, which is to yeah. improve practice and improve schools. And I think from my experiences that we, we, we can tend to use it for accountability measures mm -hmm. and not actually trust the people that are doing the most important job, which are those in front of the classroom to actually do the yeah. job. Um, so yeah, I'd just love yeah. your thoughts on that. It's a very long-winded question. I understand. <laughs> no, it's good. Eight thirty at night. <laughs> no, it's all good. I would say um, I I'm a fan of accountability. Yeah. Um, but I think the accountability needs to be aligned with accuracy. Yeah. Right. So I I have definitely talked with people uh, that would definitely benefit from increased accountability. Yeah. <laughs> and I've definitely talk with people uh who no amount of accountability uh can ever right. translate the the great work that they do you know that yes. sits there and so uh for people on different ends of that spectrum uh data for accountability means different things right um so i would say uh the first step is using i mean obviously putting the question first using data that we've all agreed to as a fair measure at a fair point in time yeah i'd say a lot of schools and a lot of leaders are under pressure to demonstrate that a change has taken place and what we know is change yes. takes time and so you've got this huge uh level of change fatigue in schools because uh you know, I mean, Steve, I'm not sure if you had Stephen Dinham on, but he would tell you that um, improving a school will take you three to seven years, yeah. right? Um, and that's often too long. You know, we've seen people shifting roles and relieving and you're in this spot for this amount of time and there's pressure on you to do X, Y, and Z and this amount of funding needs to be spent by June. Um, and so you get this kind of uh, continuous kind of pinging back between, oh, this isn't working, let's abandon it. But actually... Um, it may not be working because it's not implemented properly or for long enough to yeah. see change. Um, so I think accountability, accountability fundamentally is good um, and it needs to be tied to a really clear hypothesis of what we're trying to do. And then when the accountability does or doesn't, you know, hold up, like we have done what we're accountable for what we were supposed to do, we achieved what we were aiming to do because... And therefore, next we will. Yeah. Or um, we didn't achieve what we set out to do because, and therefore we will. You yeah. know, like as long as the, I guess I would say, um, it should never really be summative. It should always, you know, be formative in the way that we use evaluation data and accountability. You know, um, if so, if that's true, what next? Yeah. Fantastic. I think that's a um, a very in-depth answer for a very complicated uh, question. So thank you so much for unpacking that so well. Um, I'm just wondering, Ryder, um, what has being a dad uh, taught you? What has being a dad taught me? A uh, little left field, I know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think, I think probably I've got three kids, uh, seven, eight, and ten, and uh, I'm always pretty astounded that I can do the same thing with each of them and get really different results. Mm. And so interesting. Uh, I mean, not that you don't know that when you're teaching, but I guess when you see every step of the journey, um, you know, with your own kids, um, it can be perplexing at yeah. times that, one will zig when another would zag given the same environment and circumstance, um, yeah. you know? And so uh, it's probably given me, it's probably taught me, uh, I probably knew this as a teacher, but it's really resounded in a different way. The just, importance of serendipitous instruction, you know, yeah. like just because I'm ready to teach them something doesn't mean it's the right moment for them to receive that instruction. Interesting. Interesting. And uh, Ryder, as a fellow podcaster, have you got any uh, tips or tricks or anything that you've learned along the process? 
I'm always up. Yeah, I'm always up for some uh, some tips. <laughs> uh, I think, I mean, I think you do a beautiful job and I think you don't need any support or advice from me. Um, I, I mean, uh, the right guests, so I'm a bit nervous with that answer. Um, you know, you've had some fantastic guests and I've heard some of your episodes. I would say um, the ability that you have to lead the questions and kind of the information is really powerful. Um, uh, and and the less kind of scripting, like if it's a script, yeah, we can just write it up. But you know, if we're gonna have a chat, let's have a chat. Yeah, and and I think it's uh, going back to your question. Uh, sorry, your um insight before about active listening. Um, I found, and this is it's taught me so much about teaching. I mean, marriage has taught me so much about everything. But that idea that in parenting, that you can have a plan, you can have a script if you like. But quite often, the gold is when you loosely adhere to the script but then also allow for some of those moments so uh yeah i'm uh, really uh interested in hearing some of your episodes you've got some some cracking guests yeah yeah it's been been some good ones i think when both people are passionate about the same thing yeah, yeah. It leads to the best dialogue yeah so Ryder, if i um <clears throat> excuse me if i met you at a barbecue and said what do you do now uh how would you uh how would you explain that awful question <laughs> I would say I'm a teacher, uh, you know, and then uh, if the person wants to talk to me, the inevitable question that follows is what school are you at? Um, right. yes. Then I would gauge the temperature of whether they're wanting to have a genuine conversation about what I did or whether it was a, a platitude because there was nothing else to say. Yeah. Um, on the proviso that they did want to have a deeper conversation <laughs> and weren't trying to escape me, I would say uh, that I work for a, a company called Creatable. Yeah. And our mission uh, is is really about supporting teachers and empowering teachers to nurture the skills that students need for the world ahead. Yeah. Um, and uh, there's two kind of key passion pieces that sit there. The first is um, identifying and working with industry partners. Like we work with Mars, Atlassian, RM Williams, UNICEF, these kind of big brand employers of the future. Um, to, to garner the learnings about what they're looking for in employment. And uh, and then I would say we also play a role in our partnership through UNICEF um, developing curriculum in the in the developing world, East Africa and Timor. And I mean, speaking of incredible guests, you've got influence with RM Williams, you've got purposeful communication with Meta, using evidence authentically with Atlassian. You have, um, it's really lovely to see um, so many incredible companies and organizations doing amazing things around the world, but yet somehow you've managed to use that to impact the great work that teachers do. So tell me about that. How important yeah. is it to learn from some of these big weeks? Um, and why do you think it's important to be able to learn lessons from outside our wonderful profession? Yeah, definitely. I, I would start with um, I would start with who we partner with in the first instance, because it's easy to kind of sit here and throw out a whole heap of names. You yeah. know, this isn't a branding exercise. You know, this isn't a, you know, gratuitous, like Mars doesn't me, need me to do a marketing campaign. You know, they've got it under control. They got um, it, yeah. You know, our, our criteria for who we work with comes from our relationship with UNICEF. And company commitment to the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. Um, humanity is about to face the biggest problems it ever has. You know, when we look at climate crisis yeah. and food and water, sanitation. You know, these big picture things. Um, the only way that we're going to equip and give the students in schools today, like our kids, um, the skills and momentum to be able to deal with that, is to nurture these skills from an early age. And so. What I, what I learned in CC is that um, people are unlikely to have the time to engage with a 200-page report, yeah. but they're highly likely to be able to engage with bite-sized chunks of information. And if you treat them respectfully and say, this is what RM Williams is doing about compassion. Here's why it's relevant to you as a teacher. Is that useful for you? If so, use it how you see fit, you know? Like that's that's the that's the underlying value proposition that sits there we're looking for evidence you know and I, i'm not saying data here uh, we're looking for evidence yeah. of what works best 
in places like we all know feedback collaboration you know like we know the list of what works best and we absolutely do that fundamentally in our pedagogy what we don't know is what works best in industry and what is going to get our students in a position where they can maintain and hold employment and work and success in the society they're about to step into yeah absolutely and Ryder, my understanding, and please correct me if I'm wrong, was that Credible actually started um, with a focus on girls STEM. Is that correct? And yeah, why that, that focus. And tell me about that journey of how it's evolved into what it is today. Yeah, that that is absolutely how it started. Um, so it started with a really like year nine and ten STEM uh, work around design and technology, with really hands-on connection. With we've got a great. Um, a technical partner in Nakatomi who do absolutely brilliant work. So we had uh, girls coming in, in class, you know, prototyping, creating science, technology, engineering, mathematics. I don't need to talk to everyone about all of those things. What we quickly um, realised, and there's still elements of that program that exist today, but more broadly what Creatable evolved into was uh, it's the mindsets that underpin those wow. skills. Like STEM is are the tools on the tool belt, you know, but it, it's the ability to use those tools to imaginatively problem solve. You know, I mean, there's a million buzzwords that you can inject here, right, about 21st century learning and design thinking and all, all the rest of it. But fundamentally what it boils down to is what is your capacity and tolerance to identify a problem, draw on an existing skill set, evolve and prototype and have an increased learning velocity so that you can learn quickly to have an advantage in, in the working world? And from that uh, direct to student sort of teaching girls in and around that, Interesting. Um, it evolved into professional development. Fantastic. And I think, Ryder, like it's one of the the many things I love um, about Credible is that you're very clear on what you do. Like there's no mucking around. And I love that. Um, and I think the term like soft skills is the wrong word because yeah. I think these skills are absolutely essential if we wanted to, uh, and as, as you say on your website, to equip our students with the skills that they need to succeed in a world of constant change. And I would love you, uh, if you wouldn't mind, to um, to maybe unpack some of those driving forces. I mean, the first one, which I'd love you to tell me more about, is a truth in a new world and how we manage information bias, evaluation, and influence, and why why is that important in a world of constant change? Yeah, definitely. Well, that's a great one. So, <laughs> truth in a new world. I mean, you'll hear the the buzzword kind of. Um, yeah you know, float around and you'll hear things like fake news and, and these sorts of things. You know, the the two skills that sit in truth as a new world are influential and evaluative, right? Yeah. So what we want to nurture in students is their capacity to evaluate the information they're consuming mm. and the motivations that underpin it. Yeah. And we need them to be able to use those attributes to influence others. I'll tell you a story. Um, so I spent time with Atlassian. Yeah. Um, through their recruitment. But really, this isn't something we've made up. This is something we've co-created in partnership with the Australian Council for Education Research, with UNICEF and with these industry partners. Nice. So as part of that process, um, I'm with Atlassian and they're going through recruitment. They put a job for, uh, advert out. They get, I forget the exact number, but you know, say 300 applicants for the same role they all have the identical university qualification or comparable university um, qualification. So I say, well, how do you employ from there? Say, well, what we do is we go through the process. We take our best kind of 12. We have a guess at the best 12 really out of that huge pool. Um, and then we bring them in for a 12 week kind of probationary period. And at the end of that 12 weeks, we choose the person who's the best fit. And well, that, that makes sense to me, but can you articulate what makes someone the best fit? And they would say, well, um, if we bring someone in who is average to the company, then the company hasn't really gained anything. We're, we're always shooting for above average, right? And so what defines someone as being above average in terms of contribution to the company and the evolution and the growth of the role is someone who has the capacity to influence. 
So if in your first 12 weeks you come and sit at the table and nod and say, yes, sir, no, sir, good idea, sir, and, you know, pat on the back, um, that doesn't really add any rigour or value to what was already going to occur if you weren't in the room. The ability to question and influence and understand doesn't have to be like deliberate dissent, but what it has to be is an informed uh, position, which is either one of, I agree, let's move forward. Have you thought about this? Um, you know, that skill, that skill is critical. And that's the skill that we've seen, you know, I mean, there's a pretty, there's a pretty scary precipice around global finances at the moment. We've just come out of a pretty significant um, global incident, you know, with COVID. Um, yeah. Lots of companies had to adapt quickly. Yeah. And those that employed people that were able to see through not the story that they want to tell, but the reality of the situation they're in are the ones that were best equipped to adapt and evolve and succeed. Yeah. And so um, if, if you were to say, uh, okay, that's great. So this is a product for helping school leavers. Um, you'd be right in one sense. In another sense, I would say, when's the best time to teach a child a new language, you know, super early in their development, right? You know, when's the best time to consolidate numeracy facts or read um, really early in their brain development? When's the best time to nurture influence? When's the best time to nurture an evaluative mindset? Really early, right? Yeah. If If you've yeah. got... I mean, I don't want to alarm anyone with the um, the dropping rates of literacy of students coming into school, but any kindergarten teacher will tell you that the exposure to vocab and written word is much reduced since screen time has increased with pre-school students. So, you know, if mum and dad are walking the kid in the pram and they've got their podcast in, not against podcasts, but, you know, they're listening to their podcast and the kid's on the iPad in the pram, no one's having a conversation about the tree, the dog, the football, the cricket, yeah. the, the oval, you know, so the vocab is reduced. Yeah. So if we don't nurture the skill, then the truth in the new world for the students that aren't yeah. with those skills will come via TikTok. It'll come via YouTube. Absolutely. And I, I think right one of the best things, just getting personal for a minute, that my wife and I did was to get rid of our TV. We just haven't, we haven't had one for 15 14 years yeah. and like it has i mean we're not completely um from the stone age i mean we'll project a movie on on a friday night and um watch a movie with our kids but i think I, i've been thinking a lot about that about sort of those I, I feel like those that are able to give and hold attention like that is really a superpower moving forward because we are so distracted we are so sidetracked with other things and i think it's um I think what you're saying is absolutely spot on. Really, really interesting. And I think, unfortunately, only time will tell the impact of these devices. Well, they probably already are, but yeah. Definitely. And I think, I mean, we've got a course um, around engagement with, with Meta, right? Now, um, Meta absolutely understand engagement. Their data analytics exactly. are something else, right? But um, <laughs> the... the the, the purpose of like targeted advertising, you know, mm. like the power of it, um, it's also something that can be harnessed for good, right? Yeah. Like the immediate reaction is, oh, gross. I don't want to learn from them about that. But um, actually fundamentally, you know, it's about connection with what people want when they need it. Yeah. You, know, you know, if we think about, if you think about how many TikToks a student can watch in a 70 minute period on their phone, you know, and then the teacher's got to get up and try and, compete for engagement with that um, what tends to happen is um the teacher will be driven to novelty at the expense of something that is in or you know the cog load theory right some things are inherently complex right so it doesn't matter how shiny you make it it still requires deep thought and is difficult and that skill is still valued so how yeah. do you engage and compete with something that provides instant gratification absolutely you know, in in the in the future now it's not a lost cause this is a story of hope yeah. you know there are ways to absolutely do it and there are companies that are doing it really successfully within their own businesses and yeah. you know there's there's hope there yeah it's a good 
<laughs> I, I, I think so, Ryder. Right. And and there is like like I said, there's so much in that. And I like I, I I'm not just having a talk to you because it's great to have a chat. Like I, I genuinely love and appreciate the work that you guys are doing because there is for so long there has been this gap between what happens in the classroom and we're just not learning some of the lessons from industry. And I love that your courses, many of them are Nestor accredited. I love that yeah. it is on demand. It is bite size. It is where and when you want it. And to be honest, that was one of the reasons why um, I started the art of teaching is because we've all sat through professional learning and wish we were at home. Um, and for me, I wanted to create something which people could access when they want, uh, not while they're pushing their kid in the pram, uh, but hopefully <laughs> they can access in their own time. And I, I commend you for the amazing work that we're, that that you're doing. And, and for those that are listening, I'll add links to everything that you've talked about in the show notes so people can reach out, they can try some of the courses. It's it's, it's really quite exceptional. And um, right, as I said, like I feel so comfortable talking to you and I think I... Um, this is a whole, we could, we could do this for hours, but I do want to be respectful of your time. Um, and just a couple of um, uh, closing questions, if that's okay. Um, if I was uh, sitting down with you, um, uh, I was just about to step into the wonderful world of teaching. So I'm a recent graduate with no classroom experience and we were having a coffee. Uh, what's a quick, simple piece of advice that you'd give me? trust your instincts yeah and people first fantastic you know like you're a long time in teaching and it, you're a long time in student memory you yeah. know so every moment you get post a winner you know if yeah. no one might see it but you will feel it and they will feel it amazing and would that be similar advice if i was stepping into my first school leadership role a uh, first school leadership role i would say um listen first yeah you know um you will learn more friends from a well-informed i don't know than you will from a rash response yeah. that is ill thought so yeah. yeah i think yeah following through i mean the trick is you've got to then become informed and find yes. the answer but but yeah i would say patience listen trust um but yeah a well-informed i don't know is of far greater value than you fantastic know, i think it goes back to that authenticity as well when you don't know you don't know and i yeah. remember my first couple of years of teaching i did a pretty good job of sorry pretty bad job of convincing people i knew what i was doing i acted in a way that i thought leaders should act i said the right things that and, and i was fooling no one um i had no <laughs> idea what i was doing and so i think that really nicely comes back to what you're saying before about um authenticity um yep. and also positioning yourself as a learner um Ryder where can people find out more about yourself um and also more about the work that you're doing yeah so um I mean the creatable future um podcast you know is, is out there as well um I think you've got a link for it there yeah uh, creatable the website I I think is is the best way you know to con connect and uh, drive into it. I'm not a, uh, despite having courses on influence and the important on a big social presence, uh, I'm I'm not on Instagram and those things. I am on LinkedIn, um, yeah. but I I really, uh, if you want to connect with us, you know, through the website is yeah. is the best way, and we'd love to hear from you and work with you, but only if you're ready. <laughs> Amazing. Ryder, I'm so grateful, uh, not only for your work, but also for taking the time to talk with me. Um, I'm sure there are plenty of other things that you could be doing, but I'm uh, yeah, immensely grateful. Thank you so much for this wonderful conversation. Yeah, thank you so much. And thanks for the work you do. I think it's really important. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the Art of Teaching podcast today. I hope that you, like me, got some valuable insights out of our discussions. For show notes, please visit theartofteachingpodcast.com. And I've also created a private Facebook group where we continue the discussion there. The link will be in the show notes. Thanks again for listening and can't wait to see you for next week's episode.